We're going to be reading today verses 5 through 20. So follow with me if you will. This is God's word. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And we'll concentrate on those two verses next week. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every every fellow work and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. Because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Join me in a brief word of prayer. Well, Lord, we've prayed a lot today, but I need your help, so we want to pray one more time. Lord, we recognize, as Aaron alluded to earlier, we are quick to tune out when we are being talked to, and so I just want to ask for your help for all of us, Lord, today, that every one of us would listen to what you have to say to us. Please show us, Lord, what love is. Do this for your glory in the church. Through Christ Jesus, I pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a Lifetime Achievement Award is an award that is given to individuals who have made significant contributions in their field over the course of their career. And these words are These awards, rather, are typically given publicly and are followed usually by a speech from the recipient. This past week, I was searching and I came across a speech that was given last year, if you can believe it, by the 86-year-old Julie Andrews, who didn't look 86 years old at all, she looked much younger, uh, as she received the American Film Institute's Life Achievement Award. You may remember Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins and Maria from The Sound of Music. And in her speech, of course, she did what everybody always does. She got up and she thanked those who had been such a big part of her career. She, she uh, thanked her, uh, her family. She thanked her agent. She thanked her mother. But I was impressed by her speech 
because the bulk of it was taken up telling a story about a, an unnamed set designer that she had met one evening as she left late on the set of The Sound of Music. She spent some time with her window down in her car talking to this man, and this man, man spoke proudly of the work that he had done, that he, he had so enjoyed doing to make this movie happen. And she was struck by this man's work ethic. And uh, even though his name, she says, would only ever be uh, featured in the, the credits rolling at the end of the film, uh, she never forgot this man because he, he embodied those who are behind the scenes like him. The, the, the unsung heroes of movie making, without whose contributions the movie would not be possible. Now, for the Christian, we know, of course, that our lifetime achievement awards won't be granted in, on this side of heaven. They'll be given to us when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, but there is much biblical precedent for showing honor to whom honor is due, isn't there? Paul was a big fan of this. Paul was a big fan of giving recognition to those who had helped him in his gospel ministry. And he does this here in chapter 16. In Corinth, uh, despite the many issues we've been studying about that, have been, that were going on there, Paul recognizes that there are people there in that church who are happily giving their lives for the sake of others. And for the glory of Christ, he's been uh, criticizing them quite a bit about, uh, for, because of those who are, are putting, making it all about themselves. But Paul wants to make sure that he ends this letter by focusing on the servants, the unsung heroes of the, the kingdom of God, whose contributions will only be fully revealed in heaven. And Paul wants the church in Corinth, and he wants us to learn from them. And so last week we began closing this series by considering the hinge verse of this chapter and really which is a good summary of the whole book. Verse 14, he says, let all that you do be done in love. And we've been, we've been summarizing what love looks like. And we'll do that today and we'll do that again next week for our last sermon. And this verse, verse 14, informs Paul's concluding therefores, we might say, of this chapter, the first of which, of course, was therefore last week, love gives. Today, our title and subject is therefore love serves. Love serves. This is a Paul at uh, his most practical, at least in this letter, and he shows the church in Corinth what love looks like in the way that individuals encourage and serve their fellow believers. You see, you see, friends, one of the surest, one of the surest ways to heal divisions and to engender unity and to squash pride in a local church or even in a family or in a workplace is to learn how to deflect glory from ourselves and to point out and identify the grace of God at work in everyone else around us, especially the unsung heroes who are behind the scenes who only ever make credits 
and who make gospel ministry possible. Paul is referring to what we might say are many of us in this church, many of us in the kingdom of God. And so what can we learn about servanthood from the people Paul names? Today I'll put my headings on the screen for you. I usually don't do that, but we're going to look at the first one here. The first, Paul says, servants are only signposts. Servants are only signposts, looking at verses 5 through 12. We start by, as usual, Paul does in many of his letters, closing in his letters, he announces his travel plans. Uh, Right now, Paul is in Ephesus at the writing of 1 Corinthians, and he's on his third missionary journey, and he lets the Corinthians know that even though he hopes to come to them again in Corinth, for now, he's going to remain in Ephesus because his evangelistic ministry is flourishing there, even though he's facing much opposition. And you can read about that opposition in Acts chapter 19. And that's an interesting point, because wherever there is opposition in the church, typically evangelism flourishes. Typically where there's persecution, God just seems to breathe on the message being preached, and the church actually grows. The kingdom of God expands where there is persecution. So Paul says a great and wide door has been opened to him, and so I'm going to hang out here for a little while. But in lieu of his visit from himself to Corinth, he's already told them, we saw this back in chapter 4, that he has sent Timothy to them. Now from his wording in verse 10, it's obvious that Timothy has yet to arrive, but Paul sent him, he said in chapter 4, to remind the Corinthians of Paul's ways in Christ. And so Timothy is Paul's envoy. He, he's, he's Paul's messenger. Timothy is to be Paul's voice in, in his absence. And Timothy's been sent there to help mediate reconciliation between brothers and sisters who are against each other. Now, though it might not be clear right here, and maybe you haven't seen this through the letter, but there is a rising tension that's happening between Paul and this particular church. We know this because when you read 2 Corinthians, which was written about a year later, Paul is really addressing this tension between himself and these brothers. Paul here seems to understand that Timothy may be walking into a very turbulent situation in Corinth when he arrives. And as Paul's envoy, as his messenger, he's worried that maybe some people might mistreat him, that they might shoot the messenger, so to speak. And so Paul says this instruction. He says, please put him at ease. Put him at ease. Don't don't despise him. In fact, help him. Provide for him. Provide for his travel aid so he's able to return to me without having to worry about how he's going to make it back. Remember, this is the first century. There are no cars. You have legs and you have animals. Travel took a long time, and boats. Travel took a long time, and Paul knows this. Paul knows Timothy is going to need help, so he's petitioning for this church to help this brother as he comes. But what's the real reason behind his instruction to help Timothy? Is it because he's mainly or merely Paul's messenger? 
Or is it because, as he said in chapter 4, that Timothy is, is Paul's beloved uh, and faithful child in the Lord? It's possible that Timothy was a convert of Paul's. Or, or maybe it's because Timothy is a prominent leader in the church in the first century. And all of those would be good reasons that they should serve him, that they should honor him, that they should help him. But it's none of those reasons that Paul gives why they should help him. Paul says, help him. Don't despise him. Don't devalue him. Why? Verse 10, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy is to be commended, friends, not for his position, but for his function as a laborer for Christ and with Christ, coming alongside Jesus and the work that he is accomplishing in the first century world. You see, loved ones, genuine Christian love denounces partiality, but it does celebrate faithfulness. Genuine Christian love is not wowed by position. The reason that love honors a person is not because of the titles they have before or after their name. It's not because of the credentials that they have hanging on their office wall. It's not even because of the respect that a person commands. No, genuine Christian love celebrates selfless sacrifice for the glory of Jesus' name in others. Now, Timothy, as we know, was a younger man than Paul. Timothy probably struggled a little bit with timidity, which is why he tells him, hey, drink a little wine for your stomach. I can see that you're nervous. But Timothy was also marked by faithfulness, just as he was timidity. In fact, I don't see a timid Timothy here. Timothy is getting ready to step into a hard situation and help bickering brothers see what Christian love is. So Paul says, friends, do away with this tiered, ungodly Christianity. Do do you see a person building on the foundation that is Jesus Christ, as he said in chapter 3? Are they building not a pretty or attractive ministry, But are they doing that ordinary, messy, everyday gospel work that probably won't be remembered after they die, but it's work that makes Jesus look attractive? Paul says, you see a person like that, you serve them. You you help them. You use your resources to go alongside and come alongside that worker because they are doing the work of the Lord. Friends, don't you love how Paul just refuses to feed into this Corinthian boasting in the celebrity mindset that was prominent in the first century? In fact, he he says in verse 12 that he strongly urged Apollos to, to visit the church in Corinth with the other brothers, probably those mentioned in verse 17. You remember Apollos, don't you? Apollos was a prominent leader and speaker in the Corinthian church. He's not there right now. But he was well-known in that church. And the the brothers there rallied around Paul. Paul was their man, right? But if Paul had any notion that the church in Corinth was his church, wouldn't he be tempted to keep Apollos away from them? 
rather than urge that he goes to them? He certainly wouldn't advocate that he go there. He would say, oh, yeah, Apollo says hi. Maybe he'll come sometime. No, Paul doesn't do that. Why? Because Paul isn't building a name for himself. Paul and Timothy and Apollos are all about the kingdom. They're all about the gospel taking root all over the world. Why? Well, because Apollos and Paul and Timothy are only signposts. Think about a signpost for a second. A signpost is one of the humblest things you will ever see as you are out and about. A signpost doesn't draw attention to itself. All it does is point. And people, as they travel along, they look at it briefly, and they go past it, and they never think of that signpost again. But friends, here's the thing. Every person who calls themselves Christian, who belongs to a local church, who's been given spiritual gifts and talents and abilities. I guess we could say all of us. We are all only signposts. We are all signposts. Whether you are a leader or a follower, whether you are a point person or someone who's working behind the scenes, and Paul lists both of those groups in chapter 16, Each one may have a different function, but all are necessary because as those called by God, each has a unique responsibility in their little corner of the world to herald the coming of the king. That's what we're called for, called to. Could be at home. It could be in the classroom. It could be in the office building. It could just be in your relationship with a struggling brother or sister. You and I are signposts. You see, friends, I think in our celebrity sort of social, social media world that we live in, everybody hopes to be famous. Everybody wants to be, to be known. And we've convinced ourselves that if we don't have a title or an office or at least a following, then we're somehow less than, that we're somehow inferior even in the church, I see it. If, if, you're a, if you're a woman, you're tempted to envy the other women who have more prominent followings, who are encouragers on social media maybe, someone who has a prominent position, someone who's louder than you, maybe more extroverted than you, you're tempted to envy them. Or how about the men? Man, all the men dream of being a leader. All the men dream of being prominent, maybe even being a pastor, or, or at the very least, we catch ourselves dreaming what it would be like if, if more people just knew my name. And so, friends, we want, we want to do something useful, and we want to be remembered, and, and we want to leave a legacy, even though in three or four generations, most of our descendants won't even know our names. Do you know your great-great-grandmother's name? I don't. Maybe you do because you're one of those genealogy people, but I don't. Loved ones, the desire, the desire to leave the earth better than we found it is not a bad desire. Please don't hear me saying that. That's a good desire. But this talk of leaving a legacy, 
is not a biblical idea. It doesn't find itself in the mind of God. God has put each of us on this earth not to make ourselves known, but to make Jesus known. And by grace, if we do our jobs, then our descendants will know his name, even if they don't know our name. Friends, every day I have to wake up and come face to face with the reality that even though I love being a pastor and I love being able to lead this church with my brothers Jim and Aaron, my identity is not in my office. You need to hear that, my friend. Your identity is not in your position. It's not in your calling. It's not in the tasks that you've been assigned here on earth. Because guess what? There may come a day when that's stripped away from you. There may come a day when God moves me on and I'm not a pastor anymore. What will happen then if my identity is rooted in that? I may not be forever. But you know what I'll always be? I'll always be a signpost. I'll always be a Christian until I die or Christ comes. Am I willing, friends? Are you willing to be unnamed for the gospel's sake? Are you willing to be unseen? Are you willing to be behind the scenes? Are you willing to not even have your name make the credits? So that those who are maybe more visible, who have a further reach than you, can herald that name of Jesus even if it means you're in the background. John Newton once said that this little line from the Puritan Cotton Mather had a huge influence on his life. And he said this 50 years after he heard this. This is what Cotton Mather said. He said, my usefulness was the last idol I was willing to part with. Just meditate on that line for a second. My usefulness was the last idol I was willing to part with. But now I can part with that and am content to be laid aside and forgotten so that he, Jesus, may be glorified. Is usefulness our idol? If our usefulness is stripped away from us, what do we have, friends? Who are we if we can't make a name for ourselves anymore? Friends, I'll tell you, if you belong to Jesus by faith, all you, you have all you need if you have Christ. So you can be just a signpost that directs weary travelers on their way to him. So servants are signposts. Secondly, Paul says servants are encouragers. Servants are encouragers. Paul now lists a number of folks that are known to the, the brothers and sisters in Corinth. He first mentions the, the household of, of Stephanus. Now, Paul says that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Achaia is the Roman province where, Cor where Corinth was located. And it looks like as though God saved the whole family. In chapter 1, Paul says that he even baptized each of them. So it's very probable that this family that Paul is referring to 
the household of Stephanus, is a family of means. This is hinted at in the Greek wording. So this family would have been in a unique position to serve the brothers and sisters in Corinth. Uh, This is a historical record outside of the Bible, but historical record does show that there was a famine in Achaia after Paul left, right around the mid-50s A.D. So one wonders if this family, if their family of means, was an integral part of the distribution of food to the needy in the church. Whoever they were, these were servants in the church. That's the point I want to try to make. Associated with Stephanus are two more men, Fortunatus and Achaicus. We have no idea who these men were. We have no information about them. But Paul does say one thing about them. He says these men came from Corinth to Ephesus, probably as representatives of the church in Corinth. And since letters were delivered by hand in those days, they very likely brought their letter from Corinth to Paul to to him. And then Paul wrote this letter and he gave it back to them so they could bring it back to read it to them. But Paul says one thing about them. These brothers were known encouragers in the Corinthian church. And he says in verse 18, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. These guys were always looking for ways to build up the saints. They were ready signposts to point to the ways that God was doing good in the lives of others. And friends, between Stephanus and their, fa- their family, his family, and these men, this small group just knew how to serve the body of Christ in both word and deed. And Paul gives an instruction about them. He says, be subject to people like this. Voluntarily yield to them. Defer to them out of love. Recognize them. Realize how important they are. For the church, to the church. I'm reminded right now of the ladies in the back wearing green shirts right now. Caring for some of our children. Teaching some of our children. So that we can hear God speak to us. Those are the people we ought to recognize. Those are the people we ought to subject ourselves to, to yield ourselves to. Friends, you know, it's funny. In the, in the world's way of doing things, it doesn't submit to servants, but to leaders. People get excited about how when people throw around their supposed authority, those, those who are even arrogant, those who boast in their accolades and their accomplishment. And, and let's be honest, in our flesh, we kind of like it when loud people throw around their authority. We, we, we like listening to them. But in the kingdom of God, it's servants who are honored. In Mark 10, Jesus said that the world loves to flaunt their authority over those under them, but it shall not be so among his disciples. He says, if you want to be great, become a servant. Like the Savior who would wash the feet of those who call him master. Friends, Paul did everything in his power to eliminate power struggles in the church. So what an example, what a refreshing example Stephanus and his family are using their means to serve devotedly to the brothers and sisters in Corinth, to bring encouragement in their times of despair. You 
You know, they say you can never have too much of a good thing. There's one thing we can never have too much of, and that is God's grace. Never have too much of God's grace. Paul would later write in Ephesians 4.29 that the only words that a Christian should use are words that build others up as fits the occasion. Why? So that they might impart grace to those who hear. Friends, Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 shows us what it looks like to be a professional encourager, if I could use that phrase. These are people who have dedicated their lives to the encouragement of others. These are people who notice the activity of God in the lives of others and then go at lengths to point it out in them. Do you have anyone in your life who's like that? Who sees the work of God in your life and encourages you so that you would be motivated by grace? Friends, there's a reason why the proverb says that the, the, the tongue has the power of life and of, of death. I can remember a time when my, my kids were, were little. We lived in the North Carolina mountains, and we lived pretty close by to Grandfather Mountain. And it was a snowy day. And I think my daughter was six, and my, my oldest son was four at the time. Everybody's getting ready to go outside, and we were all excited about going out in the snow. And they were really excited. And so at the time, I was putting uh, Walmart bags on their feet and hands and duct tape because the gloves never seemed to be strong enough to resist the cold. I remember I had these little gloves for, for Connor, and he was four years old. And, and I, I, I tried to put these gloves on his hands. And I don't know why, but for some reason, putting gloves on a, a four-year-old is one of the most difficult things that you can do. And so I'm trying to get his finger in there, and it felt like he had all fingers trying to go in the thumb, and then so I'm trying to get, the, you know what I'm trying to say. And so I'm, I'm, I'm putting these, trying to get these fingers in the glove. Kalen's already outside, and, and I, I just find myself getting irritated now. And I'm frustrated, I get frustrated with the kid, and I'm, I'm slamming his fingers in this glove, trying to get this glove on his hand, and I'm raising my voice, and I'm saying, put your pointer finger in this hole and your thumb in this hole. And the child was four. And Connor looks at me with this, this face, and he's just, he's just terrified at his dad, demanding that he put this, this glove on. And I exasperated him that day. And that day, Connor was motivated, but it wasn't by grace. It was by fear. We who have been given a role of authority over others, friends, we're like, we're like thermostats. We, we, can, we can either turn the heat way up or we can cool things down by our behavior, by the way we speak. And dads especially. Dads, we control the temperature of our homes by the way that we speak by the ways that we act, by the words that we use, by our demeanor. Friends, whether you're a dad or a mom or anybody else, do we use our words? Do you use your words in a way that build up or that tear down? There's not a person in this room that we can't look at and say, look, God is at work in your life. 
God has called encouragers to rise up and to refresh those who don't see God's grace at work in their lives. I've been reading through this book by C.J. Mahaney called Humility. I've been reading it with a couple of guys here at church. And he says this line here. I want you to hear it. He says, the call of God in the lives of believers means that God has been at work in them. And the evidences of grace reveal that he is at work in the present. And we will motivate others by grace when we perceived where and how he is at work in their lives and let them humbly know. They need to know. They need to know because so often they're unaware. Too many Christians are more readily aware of the absence of God and they are more aware of sin than they are of grace. I remember a time in the pastor's college, I've shared this probably before with you, that uh, I was introducing Michelle, my wife, to some of the pastors in, in Louisville, and CJ was one of them, and he came over to Michelle, and I, I introduced the two of them, and I, I thought he was going to ask how she was and, and, and some things about her, but instead of doing that, he, he proceeded to spend about four or five or six minutes telling Michelle about some of the things that he's seen God doing in me. And he didn't say anything about himself. And I don't think he said anything about you either. He was just pointing out the work that God was doing in me. And I was surprised because I didn't realize some of the things that he was saying. Betsy Ricucci, another sweet lady there, used to see, if you, if you, if you see the embers of God's grace in people's lives, do whatever you can to blow on those embers so that they fan into flame. Friends, are we fanning into flame the awareness of God's grace in one another's lives. I praise God because this church is loaded with people who are doing that. I praise God for those who, who has, have come here and, and who God has sent to, to see the embers and to breathe on those embers. But loved ones, the reality is discouragement is one of the greatest weapons of our enemy. Yes, disunity is one of his tactics, but discouragement is one of his greatest weapons. Friends, if you're a Christian, you've been acted on by God. The Lord Jesus became flesh so that you would never be without the presence of God, but it's so easy to forget how great the salvation is. When you see your brother or sister weak in their faith, it is your and my responsibility to show them one more time that Jesus is enough for them. Don't give them the garbage that our world is giving them. Don't tell them they can do it, please. Show them how good God is. Show them his faithfulness. Point them to the cross. So servants are signposts. Servants are encouragers. And finally, briefly, Paul says that servants express affection tangibly. In verses 19 to 20, Paul sends along the greetings of other churches in Achaia, as well as the greetings of a couple that the church in Corinth knew well, Aquila and Priscilla. This couple was well-traveled. The Bible records them as living in at least three different cities. They lived in Ephesus, they lived in Rome, they lived in Corinth. And when Paul first came to Corinth, he, he took a place uh, working with them as tent makers, because that's what they were and that's what he was. And, 
And since then, they've been a big part of Paul's ministry. In fact, they're in Ephesus now with, with Paul. And they've been great encouragers to Paul. But Paul uses their greetings as a springboard to give one final bit of instruction in verse 20. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So immediately, maybe you're wondering, what in the world is that? Giving a kiss, likely on the cheek, was a form of greeting that was common in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Even today, in different parts of the world, different parts of the country, kisses are common. My wife's almost her entire family is Italian. Whenever we go home and see them, they kiss us in greeting on both cheeks. It's just normal. You just do it. I remember when uh, we first started the pastor's college, we have some dear Jamaican friends uh, that we didn't know that at the time. They'd become dear friends. And Joel, the lead pastor of the church down there, he came into our apartment for the first time, and he embraced my wife and pulled her close to him and gave her a huge kiss on the cheek. It wasn't on the lips, but it may as well have been. And, and she was just, like, taken back, and I was kind of taken back by that. And especially, like, in, you know, we, we kind of do the, the hip shift hug, you know what I mean? Like, you kind of come alongside someone, and you want to make sure you don't, like, touch a person of the opposite sex too closely because it could convey sort of, of the wrong message. But in the Bible, the kiss was given as a token of honor. The kiss was, was given as a sign of love. It was given as a sign of reverence. But you see, among Christians, Paul puts that word holy there because it's even more intimate. And I, No, I don't mean in that sense, not sexually, not romantically. The holy kiss was a sign of, of shared unity, a sign of the, the common bond that brothers and sisters share in the Lord. And, and the kiss became even more special as Christianity spread across the world and across ethnicities and across cultures. It, it became a means of reinforcing the bond of love and of peace. So how fitting was it for Paul to instruct this church, one that was so divided in so many ways, to regularly welcome one another with this most intimate of actions, the holy kiss. The holy kiss was the first step in breaking down barriers of healing a fractured relationship. It, it was an act of personal humbling, more so than a handshake or a hug. It was a proof of affection that ran deeper than the mere love of the world. The holy kiss showed solidarity. Now, this is a poor example, but I can think of times when Michelle and I have been in an argument and we get in bed and we're kind of huffing and I pull out my phone and she turns over for her book and the light goes off and we know we're mad at each other. Then one, one of us, usually her, rolls over and gives me a kiss. And I can't tell you so many times that's led to further conversation and reconciliation. I, think, I can think of times where my kids have been so angry and I come up next to them and hug them and give them a kiss on their neck or their cheek and it just, not always, but a lot, just melts them. A kiss has a way of disarming a hard heart. That's what Paul is after here, this, this act of humility, this, this act of deference, this you're saying without saying to someone, listen, I'm, I'm here for you. I love you, I care about you, I'm sorry, 
I was wrong. Would you please forgive me for trying to die on this hill I was determined to die on at your expense? Would you please forgive me? The holy kiss. Now, am I getting up here and saying we should recover the holy kiss? Who said that? Was that a guy that said that? Uh, Of course. There's like 50 women and one guy over there. We live in a highly sexualized culture. The holy kiss wouldn't stay holy very long, I don't think. But Paul continually repeats this as a command in his letters, though. Peter does. This, This act was an important, though cultural, means of expressing closeness that the world didn't have. So, friends, do we have a modern equivalent that we can replace with it? Maybe we should have like a Q&A. Maybe, maybe the word, maybe we just need to say I love you more to each other. Here's a practice for you men. When you leave here today, tell another man that you love him without saying bro or man afterwards. Watch how hard it is. Just say I love you. That's a holy kiss. How about a lingering hug? Longer than a bro hug, but not quite long enough like where you'd hug your spouse. Or maybe we capture what the kiss is simply trying to convey. That just means being present, being near. Acts of love that are unspoken and without words. Friends, that may be sitting down without a time limit. Maybe someone letting, letting someone vent. You just ask clarifying questions, but you don't speak much. Just, just let them vent. It, it, it may be a confession. It may be an apology given without any expectations of that being received. But whatever it is, it's a tangible connection. Loved ones, how can we be, be signposts? How can we be, how can we be encouragers? How can we express affection tangibly? This chapter ought to make us ask the question, how can we be one another's servants? How can we give more love than demand love? How can we let all that we do be done in love? Because as we saw last week, the kind of love that the New Testament talks about is a steady, selfless, long-suffering love. Friends, I want to tell you one more time in closing that this kind of love is impossible apart from the grace of God in Jesus. It's impossible. We are too easily annoyed. We are too easily distracted. We are too arrogant. We are too proud of our own accomplishments to recover this kind of love. It's impossible apart from Christ. Friends, do you remember that night when Jesus was betrayed incidentally by a kiss from a close friend? Luke tells us that Peter was following him from a distance and they went into the courtyard where Jesus was presumably being admitted to be arraigned and to be put on trial and he's probably in handcuffs or a chain of some kind. And Peter was there warming himself by the fire. And Jesus told Peter, before the the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
So Peter's there, and he's by the fire, and he's denying Jesus. One, two, three. And then Luke says something that no other gospel writer says. He says, and Jesus turned and looked at him. And then Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus turned and looked at him. Almost as if to say, you denied me as I said that you would. But now I'm going to go to the cross to atone for your denial. So it's going to be okay. Of course, later after Jesus arose, they were by the Sea of Galilee and Jesus restored Peter, gave him the chance three times to tell Jesus how much he loved him expresses love for him despite his denial. Friends, the reality is none of us loves in the way that the New Testament commands, but neither did Peter on that night that he denied the Lord. Truly, if we are, are seeking to be served rather than to serve, then friends, we have, we have never seen or we have forgotten that Jesus came to liberate people who are enslaved by self-love. Jesus came to break the bondage of super-religious people like Peter who deny him, and he came to break the bondage of people who are not religious, but yet still who deny him. Jesus came to redeem me, one who has so many sins and faults and failures that if they were projected on this screen, I would never come back to this building again. He came to redeem people like me. What we need to watch is not the example of others, although that is helpful. We don't even need to watch Jesus' example of servanthood, though that is vital. What we need is his sacrifice. That's what we need to be the servants that he has called us to be. We all need to be stunned again at the death of Jesus for sinners the sinless Son of God, taking our debt on the cross. We need to consider again the wrath that was poured out on him. We need to consider our sins being imputed to the sinless Christ for the ugly words that we've spoken to our children, for our hard hearts toward our fellow brothers and sisters, for our pride and arrogance of wanting a position or wanting a title. Loved ones, only the cross has the power to free us from our obsessive self-absorption. Only Jesus can do that. I want you to imagine him turning to look at you today. as you think about your own craving for love from others, praise from others, imagine the Savior in chains turning to look at you and then being dragged away for you and then nailed for you, raised up for you. And then see him rising again for you 
and coming alongside you and restoring you and saying, I did this for you so that you can live for me. We're going to sing. I think it's a fitting song, I Surrender All. It's an old song, you know it. And I want to encourage you to make this your prayer as we end our time together. Pray with me, Lord. We, uh, we want to simply pause for a second. We want to slow down here for just a second. We want to consider Jesus. We want to consider the Savior. As he ascended the hill called Calvary with our cross on his shoulders, bearing our wrath, God's wrath toward us for our sin. Taking it all, absorbing it all in himself. And then saying, it is finished. Lord, before we ask you to make us servants, we're asking you to give us eyes to see. Because if we don't see the Savior, we will do everything for our own praise, even serve. I thank you, Jesus, that you're not just an example to us, even though you are that. I thank you that you became the sacrifice for us for our failure to serve you. I thank you that because of that sacrifice that everything we do can be done in love, including giving of our finances and serving and encouraging and pointing others to you. I thank you that you're patient. I thank you that even though we have failed so many times this week to get that, you look at us and you say, it's okay. I went to the cross for you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus.